Okay, okay, so you, you brought up verification. Maybe we can start there before we get into these more heady questions about like the structure of the creator economy and stuff. Because why are people obsessed with being verified? I mean, I say this as somebody who got verified many years ago when it was like extremely easy to get verified. But now, now like, uh, like on Twitter and Instagram, like there are people, what what is that 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 writer's name? Thomas Chatter and Williams, right? Is that his that name? Was so that funny. Had, was like throwing a fit. No, it wasn't even a fit about it was not like, being verified. Yeah, but it was like Harper's literally was begging for him to be verified from their handle, which I thought was really funny. Like that's so oh. funny. <laughs> it's like you're a. Do you guys not have like a Twitter rep? Like literally every single other media company. <laughs> I guess not. Um, but I, I mean, I actually, you know, no, look, I, I hate to side with that side of the fight because it's so embarrassing, but I do, I do. I'm sympathetic to the fact that like the verification, I mean, I wrote about this for the Atlantic actually about the problem with verification in general is this like binary thing that is sort of trying to communicate too much at once. Like in one sense, it's like communicating this person is like who they say they are online. And so it's like an identity thing. And then in another way, obviously, it's communicating authority in a certain subject. So like you're a verified journalist, or you're a verified, right, whatever. And um, I just think like having a checkmark is not a good like I, I do agree that it should just be for everyone that verifies their identity or something or like all or nothing. The, the system now it's, you know, verification means something different for everyone and then also you have different product features tied to verification so it's like just creating this class of users that's doesn't make any sense and you never lose it so there's all these scam people that had a legitimate job like you know 10 years ago maybe as a journalist or something but now they work in pr but they're verified you know it's like bad system yeah you know it is it's i think also um verification has been for a lot, for a lot of groups, it still is like easy, and then for most of the population, it feels like it isn't. That uses it. Like when I got my job advice, they just asked us to put our names on a spreadsheet if we wanted verification, and then you got it, like a, anywhere from a week to a month later. Whereas when they reopened the verification standards, um, it pretty much just sounded like have you like you have to prove that you've provided engagement for us on this site and then we'll give you the check like have you had a hashtag made about you have you created a hashtag mm. you know things that are don't really speak to like identity identity verification or expert status but just like were you able to make something that a lot of people stayed on, stayed the, site on the site for? I've heard people complain that like you, know, you should have, be able to have your verified status revoked, but then then some people like treat it like the uh, the conversation we had last week with Chris Gillier talking about how uh, it's hard to stuff the genie back on the bottle. So like, how difficult is it for someone to lose their verification or like have their verification revoked as opposed to just being able to keep it? Like you were saying, going from being someone who uh, you know worked in the industry and then becoming like a, a PR person for that particular product, like it lends that expertise that like Ed was talking about. Like, how easy is it to reverse a verification? They almost never do. They never unverify anyone, unless it's a huge deal. Which I think it shows the kind of like, in, in a broader sense, like the really uh, bad approach to design that Twitter has, right? Like they, like they constantly roll out these features like verification or fleets or like the new redesign, whatever, where it just, it seems like they're doing a lot of 
not a lot of thought is put into the design of a website that for, you know, Twitter doesn't have a massive user base compared to like Facebook or Instagram, but it has a has a really concentrated user base of people like journalists and politicians and, you know, like, you know, and influencers, right? Like people with influence in different parts of society. And so it is really interesting to see what what I think is like just just random design features that Twitter throws out there to see what people what people do with them end up having this huge effect on pe- on how people interact with each other and use this website which for a lot of people that use it is like you know they're obsessed with right they like their entire lives are wrapped up in this website friends and enemies it's episode 94 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always and we are extremely excited to be joined by reporter at the new york times um, doing the best coverage around on all things related to internet culture and the creator economy um, you know maybe more importantly for her cv recently published the word shit posting in an article first time in new york times history uh, so t- Taylor's a real pathblazer over here. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on TMK. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh man, so th- it's it's excellent to have you here because you have done more work than anybody. I think really not only reporting on the creator economy, um, the the kind of the the life and times of influencers uh the uh, you know and and from multiple sides of this right from you know the actual work of being a content creator the effect that it has on people that are doing creation across different social media platforms but now recently the influx and attention of venture capital seeing this as an area that it ma- now matters because there's money to be made uh, on these people and from these people yeah i just think you've you have been on this beat for a very long time and have really helped validate it as a as a worthwhile beat to be on i'm just the oldest person on the beat so i've been covering it the longest (laughs) but yeah Uh, maybe we can start there then can you tell us a little bit about the the evolution of this beat and like people's attend like reaction to um creators, influencers, these social media platforms and and like, yeah, how has that changed over time? Yeah. I mean, it's gone through like a radical transformation. Um, I started this sort of in this world in 2009, um, which is terrifying to think that that was 12 years ago, but that's how old I am. Um, and basically, I mean, I got into it all through Tumblr, um, which was kind of my introduction to the social media world. And that was really the emergence of, um, you know, still, I think in the, in the 
2000s was like when these internet personalities were emerging and when people were really starting to build media brands online. Um, and I just became very fascinated with it. I was always sort of interested in um, online personalities and like fame and stuff like that. And um, what bothered me about coverage back then and what made me want to start writing about it was just that people were writing these stories about the internet that were um, just like extremely cringy and sounded like they had never even been online before or like even bothered to talk to like a single person that had used the internet. And so I was like, okay, this is horrible. People need to take the internet seriously and people need to take online creators seriously. Like that, when I was coming up was like, you know, when, when YouTubers were still, that was not a cool like thing to be doing in 2009, 2010. Like, so um, yeah, I just kind of like that driving philosophy of sort of like taking this seriously as like labor and as job and as like a worthy thing to cover. Um, and just obviously the internet's, you know, reshaping all of our lives. And I wanted to write about that. I think I'm really interested in sort of communication technology and how it affects our relationships and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think one thing in your reporting I always like and enjoy reading is, oh, is the constant bringing in of the real world and like things that are structuring it, whether it's, you know, like the ecosystem behind like the content houses, you know, and why they act, why they're structured the way they are, or like where, uh, creators actually live or like you know what they're doing in their lives to you know monetize various things or what trends they're doing and and what prevents this or that trend from actually going viral beyond the algorithm itself whether it's the race whether it's the age whether you know when it was made or or what it's being made off of i think like it's very i think one thing i feel some writing still does probably is just like solely focus on specific dimensions which makes sense if like that's the focus but erasing that the internet and the digital world are like composites of a million other things all at once and like you know coming to us in a sort of interfaced form yeah well so much of internet culture reporting especially in the early 2010s when i was starting out was just like i mean it still is it's just like writing up memes or like writing repackaging twitter content in a mashable article or something you know not you know oh, this is what the internet this or like here's why you know, Alabama TikTok is going viral or whatever, you know, um, and it's not really like looking at that deeper level of like why things are, what that says about our world or the economy or fame or things like that. So I always try to kind of do that. Yeah. And I think you do it extremely well. I mean, this is why I've, I've loved your reporting for so long is because you really are, you know, I, I'm like, I think the move you you made recently from being in the style section to the business section is really indicative of the fact that this is not a change in your reporting. This is a change in recognition that you have been and are reporting on issues of labor and the economy. Um, it's not issues, you know, no shade again on, on the style section, right? Like that's not less valid, um, but it is a different way of framing how we understand these issues. Um, and I think that that is something that you do a lot in your reporting is really pushing that like, no, we need to understand this is not just um, you know, the Daily Mail, like, you know, repackaging, uh, like someone's Instagram post into like an article to drive engagement or something. Right. But like, no, like what is actually going on here? How, how are these people, you know, trying to turn this into a job? How are they getting paid? Or in some cases, as a recent article you had, you know, not paid to do this work. 
Yeah. And I feel like it's also, I mean, I, what I write about is across, um, like part of the reason I got my job at the Atlantic is because I was writing across, like, I mean, I, I, what I write is heavily rooted in like tech and, and the entertainment industry, obviously, but it's also like politics and culture and all these other things. And, um, I think we're, I think, I think like old school editors are starting to realize that, um, you know, I'll give the example of like my big, I did several stories in January around like the wall street bets stuff and the game stop meme stocks. And like, I've covered wall street bets for three years now. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and once again, that's the way that sort of online influence is manifesting. And um, also, actually, in January, too, I wrote about DLive and, and you know, the monetization of people storming the Capitol, how they were sort of live streaming and what platforms they were leveraging to monetize their streams of, you know, committing crimes and participating in the insurrection. And then also I wrote about, um, you know, merch merchants and how the far right has leveraged merch as a monetization path because they're so frequently, you know, working on these platforms where there's no advertising. And I wrote about, you know, these retailers selling um, merch from the insurrection and things like that. So just to give some people examples of my stories, I think a lot of people love to write me off as like a TikTok reporter or teens or whatever, as if those things aren't important. Um, when it's like literally all of this stuff has such big implications. I mean, we have Donald Trump as our, as our president. It's like, if that's not, you know, a wake up call to how online influence is shaping politics and the economy and everything. Thank, thank, thank. I, I can't pass up an opportunity to mention that uh, here at TMK, we're going to have some Facebook-esque hyper-specific uh, TMK shirts that we're going to start sending out to our patrons. So you might want to get on board now, you know, if you want one of those, this this person listens to TMK and 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 goes against the system and smash the technology whenever possible. So steer clear because I'm also a Gemini <laughs> who likes long walks on the beach and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Those like algorithmically generated t-shirts and stuff like that. That's very funny. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think that they're going to what you were saying there, Taylor, as well. Uh, like, do you have a recent piece? I think, you know, in, in this episode, I want to cover kind of both sides of this, right? Like the like the the content creators themselves, um, but then also this new influx of capital, right? And so I mean this is this is a pretty standard TMK framing here, right? We're going to understand labor and we're going to understand capital. Um, and I think that, you know, just as uh, all sectors of of the economy and tech, like there is very much a, a kind of very interesting clash here happening and a lot of similar uh, patterns representing themselves of, you know, exploitation, of burnout um, on one side, and then on the other side of that um, extraction and investment and, and you know, uh, and a lot of power asymmetries there as well. But, you know, in a, in a recent piece you had on uh, young creators are burning down. Mentioned uh, some stats that I I had no idea. Right. So you write, according to a recent report by the venture firm Signal Fire, more than 50 million people consider themselves creators, also known as influencers. And the industry is the fastest growing small business segment, thanks in part to a year where life migrated online and many found themselves stuck at home or out of work. Throughout 2020, social media minted a new generation of young stars. I think that. 
you know, un- frame seeing this in in terms of like the fastest growing small business segment is really interesting, right? Because you know, it. it I always think of that line from the Jay-Z song, like, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. And like how prophetic that is, right? Like I like how I I think a lot of these uh creators across different platforms are seeing themselves as businesses, right? A small business unto themselves. Yeah, it's kind of the way that like MLM boss babes think of themselves as business people in a little bit. Um, I mean, that's the dream that Silicon Valley is obviously selling, right? Is like you too can be a business and build your business on the internet. I mean, that is the promise of the internet in a lot of ways. I think, unfortunately, the way that it manifests is usually people building the, a business on built on top of these platforms that control their reach and distribution. So it's like, uh, it, it's, it's sort of like being a, a seller on Amazon or something. You're relying on this like tech intermediary to, you know, manage that relationship with, with your customers. You know, you don't have direct access to your fans. Usually it's like, you hope that your stuff is delivered through an algorithm that's not under your control. And, so yeah, and and that number doesn't surprise me the 50 million that much only because it's been growing so much and I think especially this year we saw such an explosion in in that world. Yeah, there's also, you know, one thing I've always been curious about and you've written out about as well too um is the, you know, the capital that does come in and structure uh how these people operate like these content houses. I think you you wrote a piece a while ago that talked about West of uh, Hudson Group as one of as like this company that's going public through a reverse merger. Uh would you talk like, you know, guide listeners through that cuz that was a very weird story that I don't think a lot of people paid attention to but was like a really good one of the, one of the few things that helped me understand like and learn more about like content houses and the fact that there's actually like companies that just own a lot of the homes um and also oh, about yeah. the man the, the rental mansion system too i think that that is you know a key a key part in this yeah i mean content houses have been a thing the first real mm-hmm. content house is actually back in 2009 when i started uh called the station which was like the first sort of collab channel on youtube um mm-hmm. and obviously have morphed into huge big business. So you have like, you know, the face clan house and, and the TikTok, you know, all the TikTok houses, other YouTuber houses. And um, they're so often owned by management companies or um, some kind of conglomerate that's trying to, that's, that wants to bring the talent in for some reason. So a lot of times these um, young influencers are like sold this dream of, of living in this house and whatever, but they have to pay rent. And it's, it's actually usually kind of can be a predatory agreement for them. Um, they sometimes sign, I mean, Jake Paul famously took 20% of everyone in team 10's profits for the next five years that they worked. And in some cases, I think potentially even in perpetuity. So he it's, it's, you're signing on a really bad deal sometimes to live in these houses. Um, yeah, the West of Hudson group in the clubhouse, which not to be confused with the audio app clubhouse, there's this um, network of content houses called clubhouse, um, which had a lot of young, it was co-founded actually by Daisy Keech who left the hype house. Um, and it was owned by this real estate group that had an interest in sort of like they wanted to, they wanted to get into the stock market. Like they wanted to become a publicly traded company. Obviously the only way that you can do that when you're a tiny company is through some financial, like, you know, magic, I guess, (laughs) like mischief is a better word for it. Um, So they did it actually through a reverse takeover. So they 
purchased Tanji Healthcare Group, which is this uh, Chinese hospital system that was listed on the public market in America, but had been sort of dormant. And they then took that over to have a publicly traded stock. And actually the stock went up because it had the same name as Clubhouse, which is the audio app. And so... Of course, none of the influencers saw a dime of any of those profits, but it's just, I think, you know, there's a ton of weird financial, um, you know, things that these conglomerates are doing because there was so much money in this space and they obviously want to take advantage of that right now. And are the conglomerates limited to these sort of real estate groups? I mean, are there like, are there talent agencies? Are there yeah. like traditional? There's management agencies. Yeah. So there's the real estate groups. Like for instance, there's a real estate group that actually just um, built a bunch of homes in Studio City that are specifically made for content creators and they have high-speed broadband and whatever. They're, and they're zoned for living and working, which is a big deal because a lot of these houses that they start these content managements are not zoned for working. And so that becomes a problem. So I would say it's also just really common for like management companies. So a management company will come in and be like, all right, I'm want to develop these eight talent. I'm going to have them all move into a house together so they can hype each other up. And like, I can kind of oversee their lives better. Yeah. And then to do that, of course, they have to give up part of their income or they have to pay an exorbitant fee. And it's just, it can end up being a really bad deal. This sounds so predatory as well. And, you know, I think this is something you've been talking a lot about in your reporting, which also real, I mean, really shines a light on this as well. And, and, and those relationships absolutely tend to be hidden behind the, the facade of the, of the content creator, right? And, and the, the kind of persona and the character that they have to put forward on the platform, right? In, in this, you know, in their TikToks or in their YouTubes or their twi- tweets, whatever, right? Like, like they can't talk about this, right? They can't talk about this, I, this fact that like these, these management companies are, have them over a barrel, right? And are, and are truly taking advantage of, uh, you know, of kids, right? I mean, taking advantage of kids who, you know, do not have that kind of savvy to be like, oh, this, this is a really bad deal, right? I shouldn't be paying, uh, you know, Jake Paul or Logan Paul, uh, like 20% of all my earnings in perpetuity. Um, or like the, the way that as you write, um, in a recent piece, brands have long had an upper hand with influencers. Most creators operate without a manager or an agent. There are no standard pay rates for creating a post for a brand or running digital advertising alongside their videos and posts. And you go on to talk about how creators are also typically single-person businesses that act as media and marketing mini agencies all in one. They conceive, shoot, edit, promote, and write all their own content, sometimes with the support of a spouse or partner across multiple social platforms every day. It can be time-consuming and grueling work that results in burnout. And part of that burnout is like, uh, you know, and you talk about how these, these, these brands and marketing agencies have access to these uh, influencer marketing platforms that can kind of like slice and dice all of these content creators into, you know, demographics, follower count, you know, providing 
this this whole portfolio of information about millions of of creators um so that the marketing agencies can then have all the upper hand whereas creators have like no information about the brands or what they pay or anything like that just really perpetuating you know an an old hollywood kind of model of of exploiting the talent but now everyone is the talent right my wife works in education and the number of the number of elementary aged middle aged kids that she has that they ask them because every school you know they like one of the questions that kids are always asked well what do you want to do when you grow up what do you want to be when you grow up what kind of job do you have when you get older in many cases like four out of five want to be youtubers they want to be some type of content creators like it's looked at as like a job that anyone can have i mean hell if like six-year-old kid can make 30 million dollars playing with toys on youtube like you know somebody has something to put on youtube and everybody thinks that they have something that is marketable and Everybody feels, you know, 90s uh, boy band like shit. It's just like if you have just the the smallest amount of talent that people are interested, someone is going to be there to, to exploit, exploit it along the way. Yeah. I mean, and I think part of the reason so many kids want to pursue a career in this industry, one is like obviously the way the tech industry has marketed it to them, but also like it's the version of work that they see modeled every day. Like they consume a sense of what other jobs entail, but you're watching YouTubers who talk extensively about their jobs and you see their rise and you see them get this stuff. So it's like they often have a better sense of how that job works than even sometimes their own parents' jobs. So it's, I think they're, they're, they're sort of like funneled into it very early. And obviously it's also a career that's accessible to really young people, you know, other jobs you have to go to, go to school, get training, whatever YouTuber is like something you can do when you're 14, you know, you can start at any age. And I think that's also another reason why like kids, you know, there's so many people just pushed and pushed into it. And some of the collective enterprises are, you know, the super groups or the conglomerates, like, you know, the, the phase uh, esports one. You know, what are, I think like similar with tech workers, when people talk about the labor conditions of tech workers, there's two groups of people. One who are like, well, you know, there's some group of people who don't care too much because of the money they make and because of the products they're working on and others who care. And and the question is like, how do you get them to, how, how do you get them to either identify with labor organizing efforts in the labor movement or to decide that or see that their workers themselves in opposition with management? And I'm curious, like with the, you know, with influencers, with content creators, generally in the industry, what are the labor conditions for people who are in these large collectives and not working solely by themselves or even for people who are working solely by themselves Uh, because it sometimes it feels like when i read or see other people talk about it it's largely dominated by like the money and the autonomy that the largest stars seem to have um right it's just i mean even the largest stars don't have as much money and autonomy as people think and i think so much about it is about projecting a lifestyle and that lifestyle is often not a sustainable lifestyle. You know, mm-hmm. the way that some of these influencers are are living, like you you cannot do that. You know, I've seen what happened to already generations past where the, there wasn't as much money, but it's like, it goes away quickly. Um, and it's just, I mean, the unfortunate thing, and I think what's so hard about, there's been all these efforts to have these like collective bargaining groups that are like, you know, Vine stars sort of famously the the top dozen or might've been top 20. I can't remember. I have to pull my story up. Um, Vine stars actually met with Vine right before the app shuttered to try and get them to pay a million dollars. And Vine was like, fuck you. Um, but it's like time and time again, like these groups and, and the biggest stars will come together and ask for something. These hat companies are like, fuck you. And then frankly, those stars 
you know, the cycle continues. There's so many people behind them. There's so many younger people right after them that it's really hard. Um, it's really hard to have staying power. And you're right. Like, you know, people do look at that top 0.0001% and use that as a model, but there's there, there, it's not even fair to say they're ex- the exception to the rule. They're like almost never that will happen. Almost never, almost never. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the myth of the entrepreneur, right? Like everyone wants to think that they can right. become Elon Musk. It's like, you're not going to become Elon Musk. Right. Don't sympathize with Elon Musk. Like you're not, that's not your path. <laughs> it's good that you're not going to become Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> the world. But everyone thinks they're just Elon like Musk. one step away from a company that's going to be exactly like the next billionaire. It's like most, most small businesses fail. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about this as the fastest growing segment of small business, it's important to remember like the fail rate of normal small businesses. And then these, it's like even more precarious. I think there's a really nice connection here between that kind of like the valorization of the founder, right? Of the, of the startup entrepreneur. um, And it's like, you know, now, now unicorns are a dime a dozen, right? So it's like, oh, you know, like I'll become a unicorn uh, company just by getting in on the sector, right? Like, like I'm getting in on a gold rush here. Um, And, and, seeing that same kind of, you know, really exploitative ideology of this valorization of the founder now being, you know, applied to, uh, to content creation as well, which is something that you can do with even less startup capital, even less infrastructure, uh, you know, even less of a, of a, of a network because you build your own network, right? You don't have to go to Y Combinator to create your network of, of, of people and contacts and stuff like that. I think you're exactly right that there's this like expansion of this like entrepreneurialism, hustle, grit, like, you know, it's the same kind of stuff that, you know, and Ed's reporting on the, the gig economy. It's the same kind of thing around like flexibility and, 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 and autonomy are sold to people driving uh, cars or delivering food. Um, it, but this, this, yeah, it just seems like this is now, this is now applied to everybody, right? Everybody uh, is the entrepreneur of the self. And that's awesome and wonderful in this telling yeah. of it. In, in, right. In that telling of it. Meanwhile, you have no labor protections. You have no you know, maximum work hours. You have these children. You know, Hollywood, for all of its flaws, had a system around child labor. Like if you're on a movie set as a child, you have to you can only work a certain amount. You have to make sure that you're in school, you know, all this stuff. Jake Paul had a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old living in his content house, just working all the time, 24-7, right? Like with no, no protections. And then not to mention, you know, the older ones, it's like you don't have health care. You don't have all of these labor protections that people fought for for years just don't apply to internet work. And so it's horrible conditions. And then, of course, when when influencers or content creators talk out about that, you know, people are are horrible to them. And it's very much like, well, you should be thankful. You know, you should be yeah. should be glad for what you have. And it's like. Like, what do they have, right? I mean, mild internet fame, but it's like, I I think there's also this totally misunderstanding, like people, you know, think of of anyone with followers as successful. And it reminds Mm. me of reality TV, you know, know, in the mid 2000s, there was that whole reality TV boom. And it was this idea of like, well, if you're on TV, you must be famous and rich. And actually what we saw is like all of those reality people on Wife Swap and whatever, it's like they went off into obscurity. They made almost no money. The production companies took every Everything. And 
it's the same on the internet. It's like, you can have a million followers and still be broke. You know, it's, it doesn't necessarily translate, especially if you have a a bad manager involved. So what can be done in terms of, you know, labor conditions? Cause it sounds pretty much like the industry, the way it's structured, the way that most of the content gets produced, the way that relationships are maintained so that things can get produced or so that people rise up is uh, pretty antithetical to protections, right? Going into these content houses, signing these deals with these uh, real estate or management associations, uh, having to rely on the platforms in, in ways you compare to Amazon sellers on the marketplace. I mean, all of this whittles away and sounds like the, and leaves with, leaves a creator with little to no autonomy or agency at any point. It feels like other than like, making things and even then that can be the under the guidelines of a contract right yeah i mean i definitely it's a it's a sad state of affairs and it's like every time i try and think through how to solve it and i interview people about sort of like what can be done it's is the options are not great i mean obviously the government is not going to be able to coherently regulate this industry they can barely you know turn on their computers they have absolutely no understanding of what any of this entails <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's insane. I mean, think of the FTC, right? Like they tried to crack down on sponsored content. They don't even know. They don't, nothing. That's, it's nothing. It was a worthless initiative. So yeah. I don't think that that necessarily like regulation is going to help or, you know, there's not going to be some kind of new labor laws, maybe, but probably not for a long time. I think um, making it a more competitive tech environment would be helpful. Right now we have these, you know, YouTube and Google and Facebook sort of like own and, and now TikTok, like the, the the market share. So I think if we had a more diverse um, group of smaller companies where they could hop from platform to platform, like that's helpful. Um, but we just need more protections for independent workers in general in America. I don't know. If you talk to a lot of people in the creator space, they say uh, that crypto will solve this, which <laughs> I think is funny. <laughs> 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 they say like, well, we're going to issue governance tokens and that's actually going to be the, da, da, da. Oh, yeah. and I'm like, I don't I mean, maybe. Sure. <laughs> so I, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think there just needs to be an awareness. Like first we, I mean, this is what the sort of the thesis behind my work is, is like, first we need people and most people do still do not take this industry seriously. The VCs are only starting to take it seriously in the last six months because they realize there's money to be made. So they're taking yes. it seriously in the context of <laughs> exploiting it. But it's like the average people are still so dismissive. Like go look at my Twitter mentions and you'll see yeah. like they're so dismissive of this whole economy that it's terrifying. Even the people in that space, I think like your piece on Atlanta um, and finding like longstanding groups of creators there and how they weren't even taken seriously by people already in the industry who got there after them, right? And are just Mm -hmm. dealing mainly with right creators are not taking Black creators seriously. And I think that, you know, partly because they're Black and they're not going to be taking Black workers, creatives seriously. And because I think like on some level, there's like this really, it's really the seriousness is only directly correlated with the money. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, with VCs not taking it seriously until like the last six months, they realize they can make a lot of money by getting in on this process at some point. And uh, the management companies, unfortunately, thinking like, okay, Black creators are not just going to make us money, but the white ones have and will always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Last year, I was talking to Chrissy Ford, who is a lifestyle influencer, and I've known her for like over a decade. And she's a black woman. And she was saying that, like, actually, she got such a bump in Instagram followers last summer because now, suddenly, like, since sort of this, you know, 
people sort of started to be aware of, of, oh, oh yeah, well, we actually haven't included black people in any of our campaigns for like 10 years. Now they're sort of like, they'll just take a couple of these influencers and treat them, you know, just tokenize them and treat them like, oh, look, look at what we have here. But from a systemic level, obviously, I mean, they're the most exploited and there's so many, there's so many, like, you know, there's so much in inequality, even within the industry. I know I mentioned music, the music industry earlier, but it's, it's been an MO of the music industry since shit, since recorded music, it seems like white, not just white producers or white record label owners, but just white artists in general profiting off of the work of black artists, you know, not just not only taking their music from them and stealing their royalties, but also covering the music and making a million dollars of it without the originators of that music seeing a dime. Yeah. And women being paid less. I mean, there's just, there's all of this stuff that, that are broader problems, right. That are manifesting in this industry in an extreme way. Um, and there's a little bit of awareness, but, but yeah, most people just still are still just don't recognize this as work and they don't take, they, they don't think that these people deserve anything. They're like, Oh, you got followers. Why do you deserve anything else? Why do you need healthcare? Yeah, I mean, no. you mentioned this in the chat earlier, uh, Taylor, but it, it's like th it's this model of the of you know the music industry of the '90s boy brands and stuff like that, but like scaled massively, as as you as you put it, right? And I think that is really important to to keep in mind here is that like none of this is new, none of this is coming out of something that you know out of out of a system that wasn't already existing right um but what is new is that it is scaled massively right that that it it's is formalized now yeah it's it's not formal in that way though right like the hollywood and and the music industry are like that's formalized like i think mm -hmm. maybe from back in the days like i think we're we're at this point where it's so wide open and so crazy to a point that I don't think most people recognize or believe they're like, Oh, it's like the music industry. Right. But online, but it's like, no, no, no. It's so much worse than that. It's like mm. before the music industry even existed, maybe there, it's like the, the music industry, even though it's with its problems and same with Hollywood, right? Like they have some system, like they've got some structure. There's no structure in the internet, obviously. Right. And and you have also everyone getting around everything. It's like sponsored content is only one way to monetize, right? People are setting up merch shops. People are doing NFT stuff. It's like, it's just, it's so hard to track and it's so all over the place. And then not to mention, you know, half of the people that these platforms have boosted are like heavily radicalized and, and suddenly promoting like really dangerous stuff as well. And, and there's the platforms that have to deal with that. So it's just all kind of a mess. To the end of the week, I live by the beat like you live, check the check. If you don't move your feet, then I don't eat. So we like neck to neck Yes, we done come a long way Like them slim ass cigarettes From Virginia This ain't gonna stop So we just gonna continue I am very curious as well And I know you've written about this About your kind of approach To reporting on these things About the, you know Your ethics around the fact that like uh, you are writing about, you know, oftentimes teens and, and kids. Um, and, and these are people that you're having to rely on to really understand how this is happening and their experiences in that. So I am, I am very curious as a reporter, how do you approach trying to make sense of this mess as you've just Well, put I would it, say right? it's a big misconception that I write about teens because I would say like 90% of the people that I talk to are like very adult, like entertainment executives or tech people or like people that work on Instagram. 
Instagram on a certain product or whatever. Um, or a lot of like, I mean, my longtime sources are like agents and managers in this space mm-hmm. that have been working since 2009, right? Like they see, those are the better sources to have because they see it all and they have a broader view of the industry, you know? Um, so I talk to creators all the time. I mean, I talk to creators are not teenagers. Um, although I think of them as young cause they're 25, <laughs> which is so young to me <laughs> being in my thirties. Um, but yeah, um, I mean with young people, I I'm very tight with a lot of parents. So, I mean, um, there's this influencer I've read about recently, Ellie Zeiler. I mean, I know her mom, Sarah really well. And I kind of know I've, uh, a lot of the parents of some of the really young kids are, are closer to my age. And I just, I talk to them a lot and I think they can talk a lot more coherently around the position that their child is in than, than the kid themselves. Often kids are just blind and like, Oh, this is going to be amazing. And the mom can really speak or the father can really speak to like the hours that they're working. And I, I write a lot also about, um, like both those sides of things. I mean, I wrote a big feature from the, for the Atlantic before I even worked there. I freelanced and wrote this long piece on what it's like when your kid blows up on the internet and how parents have to kind of navigate this world and, and have lost autonomy over, or have lost um, sort of control over their children in a lot of ways. Suddenly their kid is, has, has a lot of money and the, the dynamics change and, and how people navigate those dynamics. Um, but I will say, I mean, one reason I think I dry or there's a lot of ire towards me on the internet sometimes is that I take young people seriously. I mean, young people, especially young women, as I've I've been a young woman, and um, you know, you're so they're so dismissed, and people will speak to them in such a condescending way, and I've never wanted to do that. And so I think that's why my stuff resonates is I actually do do the work and sort of like interviewing people. I was just to bring up one example of that, how that comes through is um, I wrote a feature about what it's like when you realize what it's like for children when they realize that their whole internet is or their whole self is already online. And I interviewed kids age six to 11 about the first time that they Googled themselves or found out the first time that they got a phone and found out that basically their parents had been posting about them for years or that they had a Google search results because their kindergarten had a blog or a sports team that they were on was suddenly, you know, had posted all of their life scores for their, you know, elementary school soccer league and Mm -hmm. how they navigated that identity and how they squared that identity with their own identity and kind of try to build their own social media selves. So I think like, that's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. And I'm not like, Hey kids, like what's the latest meme, you know? Yeah, no. And and I definitely did not mean it in that way. No, so no, no. I, not that. For... I just like to explain to people. Cause I think sometimes people don't understand what I actually write about. Yeah. And so I just like to explain that. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I appreciate that. I was going to say, I, 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 I really appreciate you clarifying that and being really clear. And I think that is something that makes your your work really powerful is that you do take it seriously, right? Like, you know, even in this, uh, in your article recently about, um, you know, burnout among creators, it was heartbreaking to be reading about these like 20 year olds, right? Like you're interviewing these people that are like 20, 21, 22, and how they they have burnout as if they are like, you know, 50 year old middle managers, right. (laughs) Who are like, Mm -hmm. have been in this industry for 30 years or whatever. And are finally like, I've had enough of it. And they're like, they are 20 and they are already having like, like just absolute, yeah, a lifetime worth of uh, exploitation and, 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 and pressure to produce constantly at an uh, increasing pace. Um, You know, they, they are, feeling all of that at such an accelerated pace. 
Yeah, it's terrifying. And it's, I was just mentioning as well, like the mental health cost of that. Like there's just a huge, I think psychologically, we're like damaging a generation of kids because I, do, I just think it's, it's so much to deal with and to have that kind of like level of intense scrutiny on you from that young age, just, I don't know. I've seen it really destroy people. And I think we're just bringing that to everyone now. So it's scary. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it is, I think, a lot about, you know, um, as you've talked about, as you talked about here, and I think as the writing, you know, and reporting makes clear how much of this is a wild west, a frontier that is yet to be really, the main people who are structuring it are the ones who are, t- who are taking advantage or causing or like, have no interest in, uh, in stopping, you know, the, the burnout, the overworking, the mental health crises, the depression, you know, causing or at least sparking you know at various points exoduses from these platforms you know and i'm curious if you know you've you've said you've said you've seen it over time burn people out and like break them down do you think that it has or can the immediate you know sense get better or that there's just too many other unregulated or un you know examined factors to do something as simple as like help creators not burnout in five years or not feel depressed as they keep working through that burnout? Well, I definitely think that um, more people are learning what it is to have an online audience. And that's Mm -hmm. actually been really good in terms of like, I think, especially if you talk to a lot of young people today, like teenagers, I mean, I have a, a lot of teenage cousins and some of them have various levels of success on the internet or, you know, a few thousand followers on some project, whatever. It's like, they are, they understand what it's like to have backlash or get burnt out or whatever. And, and so I think they're understanding those problems in a more empathetic way than definitely people from my generation where it was more like, fuck you kind of. Um, so hopefully like conversations like that will normalize things like taking a break or whatever, you know, um, But I don't know. I think these platforms, the hard thing is like, it's what the platforms incentivize. So until we disrupt these platforms, we're all caught in this system. Um, But at least with the younger people, there's more awareness. I mean, at the same time, that's like the most vicious, you know, it it can also be the most vicious side of the internet. You know, if you're a really young star, you're you're up against so much toxicity. Um, Although there's so much toxicity in the mom world. I actually was thinking recently, I shouldn't even say that young people are more toxic. Some some mom groups I'm in are like the most toxic thing of all. So you you wrote a story about some groups um, like uh, Upper Upper East Side Side Mamas. Scared to even mention their name. They were so (laughs) horrible to me. I mean, (laughs) I think having kids drives certain people crazy. And obviously there's no, there's no like barrier to having, you know, any crazy person can have a kid. So, um, but I've, I just noticed, you know, there's a lot of older women and I say women just because it's what I focus on. I'm sure there's men, you know, men are equally toxic in different ways, but as a woman, I feel I can speak to this, which is that like, there is this like hatred towards, I think a lot of like younger people sometimes or what they have, or it's, it's this like, I don't know what it is that, that brings it out, but it's, yeah, I see it towards lifestyle influencers. If you go on a lot of these forums that are sort of bashing young women on the internet, a lot of times it's other women and sometimes women that are just a little bit older than them. So it's very weird dynamic. And 
parents are crazy. I mean, parent groups in general are crazy. <laughs> I'm in more involved in the mom ones, but I'm sure that the dad, I mean, I've seen some crazy dads and parenting groups as well. So I think it just, you know, so much of your personality and your hopes and dreams and values are manifested through your children. And so when you add the internet into that, it's can be toxic. Yeah, I mean, speaking of like reality TV, right? Like, I, I, you know, things like Dance Moms and stuff like that. Exactly. Like, put such a, a spotlight, you know, and I'm sure a very exaggerated one, but maybe not to a great degree. You were talking about how you you interview, and a lot of your sources are the parents of of, of these creators, and it's like, do you see a lot of parents being like, "Hey, now, like, you know." make sure you pay attention to your school and, you know, don't get too out of hand on this. Or do you see parents really pushing and being like, you can be something great before you're it's even both. 18? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's both. It's both. And a lot of parents are in really bad economic situations too. I mean, like the parents of that 14 year old that went to go live in Jake Paul's house, like they really care for their son, but this is their son's dream and they didn't have tons of money, you know? And so it's, I think they, I think a lot of parents almost always want what's best for their children, but it's, it's, they don't know they're, they're ignorant to the space or it's their child just being like, please, 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 which is really hard to say no to. Um, or they're the crazy dance mom parents that are just like living through their children. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's hard. I mean, I, that story about like interviewing people, you know, these kids that discovered their online personality, like discovered themselves online. One boy was talking about when he just got Instagram for, he got like an Instagram account for himself when he was like 12. And he found out that there was a hashtag of his name already with like all of these photos of himself. And like, I just think, I just think like parents should be more aware of identity and the internet and privacy of the internet. And I think a lot of parents are like way too open about what they post I mean, I will never post anything personal about my life ever anywhere. Like, I just know it's going to go to some face recognition system. I'm like, I don't want these apps to know my family members <laughs> or anything. You know, when I first started going on the internet in the 90s, you'd always have adults tell you, uh, don't share your information. There's too many strangers on the internet. And now parents are like, share everything. Let's post all the pictures of kids from the moment they were born until they were old enough to discover that, that there's this trove of photos of them on the internet. I mean, that's gotta be fucking terrifying as a teenager to discover there's like 10 years of photos of you, like on your parents' social media, when you like look for a hashtag of your name. And not just photos, but they've constructed an entire personality, like your entire... And it's not just the parents, it's the preschools now that have Instagram accounts and the elementary schools or the after school soccer thing where they put all the videos of the kids on YouTube so the parents can watch, right? Or the blogs that these classrooms keep now, like it's just an insane amount of information. And I don't want to sound like a boomer because like, I'm not like, eh, you know, like <laughs> get offline everyone. Um, I just having, <laughs> I, I think having insight into what this has done has like totally radicalized me. I mean, I definitely had a phase where I was oversharing myself and I will, I just never want that for anyone else. Um, yeah. I mean, I've never posted about my family members, thank God, but. Yeah. You know, I think it is, I mean, it is I totally, I feel similarly, you know, in that, learning more and more about the online economy and about the digital world that people are working in makes it a little terrifying to then see 
elements of that stretch into stuff like childhood or stretch into uh, stuff like we were talking about uh, before the recording, like hobbies, right? Like the like even in pre-monetized forms, just it, just spreading the blogging and the videoing and feels like a uh, room to uh, then allow monetization, right? Or to then allow a weird sort of unprotected, exploit exploitative forest to emerge when like we can't even stop that in the space with adults. Yeah. And it's just this, like, I I think that the more about yourself there is out there, the more other people can also build their own narratives about you, which can be very harmful and damaging. You know, like people can have just random bits of information and people will sort of fill all of that in for them. And, you know, when you're going to find a job or you're trying to pivot or reinvent yourself in some way, it's very hard to shake that past. And I think, I think just more people are realizing that. I mean, definitely the 2010s was like the boom of social media. And I think it's like just now occurring to people like, oh, you know. I mean, there, there's so much to, to to talk about here. I mean, the that the monetization of hobbies is, is one thing. I mean, you know, who are we to cast stones uh, on TMK where we are we are totally like, you know, starting a podcast and we're 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 content creators now, right? This machine creates content. <laughs> and you know, and 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 getting in on 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 that uh you know even the boom in podcasting, I think that is absolutely part of this as well. Um, and, and, you know, shows like, you know, call me daddy uh, or, you know, stuff. Call like her that. daddy. Oh, call her daddy. <laughs> See, I'm so out of touch here. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. Don't call me daddy. <laughs> also, I just want to say, like, I'm very pro like internet and building businesses on the internet and finding yourself through the internet. Like that's the whole reason I have a career. I'm so, I really, I'm definitely like a tech, like optimist in a lot of ways. I just think that like these, I think that the current system is very bad. Like, and I wish we had a better way to do all of these things that we want to do. Cause that is the promise of the internet. That is what the internet could theoretically do. It's just these, I think our version of it right now is bad. Yeah. I can see a system where it's like, instead of, you know, for example, the the content house is being mediated by these conglomerates. I mean, then you could just have, you know, we've talked, or, you know, we've talked, I think a bit about like having public funding for writing more, but arts, you know, in general, just people like having, public funding for more experimental experimental housing or you know production or whatever else they would want to do there right i mean there's like a lot of models that could emerge but it ends up being that like the one we have now feels increasingly noxious right you get vcs thrown in the mix you're getting all sorts of capital that has no interest in the people unless they're producing it seems into the mix and then you have like a an environment where all the problems in the regulated part of the economy are on steroids in the unregulated and still developing and still evolving part in this digital world. Right. Yeah. There, there's mm-hmm. somebody you've uh, a source you've, you've quoted of, you know, and in some of the recent articles I've read by yours, I'm, I'm sorry, is it Legion or Lijin? Yeah. I'm profiling her this week. Actually, I wrote the profile, but I think it's coming out this week. We, she's fascinating. She's, mm-hmm. Did you see guys? She like went viral on socialist Twitter recently, which was very funny to me. Like Hassan Piker was retweeting her and stuff. Cause I mean, I would say she's one of the few investors that actually thinks in an interesting and critical way about this whole economy. Um, because she talks a lot about labor and uh, sort of the, the parallels between the gig economy and creator economy. Um, 
And it's interesting to hear that from a VC. She's definitely like one of those people that's in it because she sees a vision of the future and not to make money. Like she also hosts these classes where she teaches, you know, creators to invest and stuff. Um, I feel like she's one of those people I talk to her and I'm like, yes, like, yes, these people are being exploited. Yes. We're on the same page. We're on the same page. And then like, and then you'll be like, and so what should we do about it? And she's like, crypto will solve this. <laughs> so that's the one thing I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But she's very into that. And I think into crypto as a way. I mean, which which is the promise of crypto too. It's like crypto it is about being decentralized. And I think she wants to see this world where these big tech conglomerates do not have all the control. And it's, you know, in an ideal world, I think, cryptos that blockchain sort of type technology could get us to that more decentralized future. I just think that what we've seen so far is um, it's, it's, it's not really done that. It's just sort of enriched the same miserable tech people from Silicon Valley. So we'll see, but, but Lee is, I mean, Lee is, is really, really interesting and like a very, I don't even know what, like how to categorize her views on things. Cause they're so nuanced, but everyone should follow her. It, it all it, it left out to me when I was like rereading a bunch of your articles all at once and being like, hey, this person, like you keep quoting this person and their mm-hmm. quotes are like, I'm like pumping my fist. <laughs> like like her analysis of the problem is is so dead on in so many ways and so frank as well, right? Like it was like really shocking. I mean, I looked her up because I was like, who is this person? She's a she'll call a, out a, anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's a general partner and a founder of like a venture capital firm. And I was like, wait a minute, why is this person also having quotes like in, in a piece that you wrote, you know, quote, the issue here is ownership. The worker class is disenfranchised and does not have ownership over the means of creation and distribution. It's like, yeah, exactly. She's also said that like Karl Marx is very underread in the US. And like she has a lot of views that I think are not what traditional VCs think about. And I think it's really important. I think actually she's the only one, one of the only, I mean, there are a few, but she's one of the few VCs that really thinks through these like critical things and is like, look, I'm using investing as a way to like manifest these next, this next version of tech. And yeah, you have to read my profile of her when it comes out soon. Oh yeah. She's a very interesting person. I know I quote her a lot because I I just I I like think she's brilliant. And also there's not that many other VCs that can speak coherently on (laughs) on the creator economy Mm. stuff. Yeah, like like <laughs> no it, it's a great to source to have because she's in such a very interesting position with such like interesting views. I think it is also interesting in itself, like how you can have this really good diagnosis and analysis of the underlying political economy and the structure and the power asymmetries and all of that. And it also just shows how very difficult it is to have a good analysis of the solution of that. What do we do next? When it's like, uh, I don't know, crypto, <laughs> right? It's yeah. Like- well, it's so, it's so, I can't say that I have a better solution and I, it's yeah, it's it, yeah. Lee is also like the reason that those VCs like started to recognize the creator economy. I mean, she, when she was at Andreessen Horowitz, she that was what she pioneered. She wrote some of the most famous sort of seminal blog posts about this, and she's written a bunch of she's she's written about like universal creative income and why creative people need a universal income and need like funding, kind of like Ed, what you're talking about, and um, the creator middle class, which is why you know. Yeah, she's a very interesting person that people should follow. And I always try. I, yeah, my editors like stop quoting her. I'm like, I want to quote her in everything. She's very, <laughs> has very interesting thoughts. The thought going back to like 
ownership over like creative endeavors. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan of like including blockchain in to the dynamic, like, you know, it specifically goes to like something like NFTs where like meme creators, you know, are be able to monetize something that they created in some cases, like years ago, people don't realize like memes is like, as they are now have been around for years. The people that created some of those memes are now doing like NFTs so they could just like try to recoup some type of money that they should have earned off of something like that. Yeah, Jeremy, I think that, that I mean, obviously I, I'm a little bit like crypto pilled myself, I have to tell you guys, because like, yeah. I do think that there is so much that can be done in that sort of the distributed world. And like, I, that's undeniably like kind of where things are moving. Um, I just, it's, I just think we have to watch out for those characters that we always see, which are like the, some of the more Laser predatory yeah, just some of the people that like, I mean, I also think of it as in early social media, like when I was really early on Tumblr and I would have to validate like social media people, like there were so many scammers, right? Like so many people, like mm. all the hustler people, like, you know, there was a lot of people that, mm. that, that made the, the, that industry look bad. But I think if you find the interesting people in, in that movement, you know, there are people that want to bring it to a better place. Then there's a lot of people that just want to get rich and that's mm. the tension. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that venture capital side of things as well, where the, there seems to be a drive of a kind of like, you know, when there's a gold rush, you, shell the, you, you sell the shovels for the gold miners, right? And so there seems to be very much that drive of like a lot of the venture capital is being invested in the, the infrastructure and the platforms, and, you know, things, things for creators to you know, monetize themselves or share, share their message or, you know, the, the, the tools needed to do all of this. Like, you know, is, is that right? On one hand that there's, that's where a lot of the venture capital investment seems to be and not so much in the welfare of the creators themselves, but in just like selling the infrastructure and tools while at the same time, I mean, this was really interesting, you know, talking about clubhouse, you know, the, the audio app, uh, and, and how you wrote that, uh, this line between, as, as you write, to quote you, um, the lines between venture capital and the creator world blur are blurring. Many traditional venture capitalists are also seeking to become creators themselves. And you wrote about this partner at Andreessen Horowitz, um, Nate Jones, who has amassed over 4 million followers on Clubhouse. Well, he's amassed those followers. Yeah, he's amassed those followers because the company put them put their own partners on the suggested user list, which I just think is so hilarious. Mm -hmm. It's like, imagine if the investors in Facebook had made it so that in order to be on Facebook, you had to friend the investors. Like that's basically what they did. And I just think it's so <laughs> funny. This is, this <laughs> is the MySpace so Tom funny. strategy. This is MySpace Tom strategy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I was with a bunch of those like kids in Atlanta actually. And they were like getting really into Clubhouse because there was a, there was this wave where like a lot of like young black users like came on, which they intentionally tried to court. And these kids were like, yeah, I like it. But like, who the fuck are these people? Like you have to follow them to get into the app. And like, I can't get rid of them. And I'm like, oh my God. God, how is this valuable? But yeah, Nate's I mean, signed by UTA or something now. So, or WME. It's also like, I mean, famously, the whole reason why Bezos like started Amazon Studios is that he wanted to network with Hollywood movie stars, right? Like he wanted to yeah. have like a, like a pool of friends and, 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 and famous celebrities that he can, you know, well, they want take access Instagram to culture. Yeah, yeah, like he can None post of these... Instagram photos with The Rock and stuff like that, right? 
Yeah. It's just wanting, desperately wanting access to a culture that they are not driving and really have no part in and have sort of, are sort of the antithesis of, I think. Mm. And it's funny to see it manifest so in that way. What role does, or do you think, is there any role for private capital or, or investors in these sort of spaces? Because as you said, a lot of times it really does feel like the motivations for private development of this space end up being like what a group that has nothing to do with the production wants. They want profit. They want access. They want to see things made. They want this sort a sort of future made for their money to have a certain return and not so much about like what the creators are actually like interested in themselves. And even though they're doing all the work. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it, I, I came up in media, you know, in the early 2010s and that was this era of VC funding in media. So like Buzzfeed, you know, I used to write for Mike.com RIP. It got sort of basically <laughs> sold off in a fire sale, but it was this, you, I benefited a lot from that boom in funding where there was all these websites, right. That were totally unsustainable, but were being buoyed by VC money. Um, and I, I think I sort of see a lot of that stuff in the creator space too. Like more money in the space, yeah, it's going to create a lot of unsustainable tools and dumb stuff, and you know, it's going to create a lot of bad incentives and a lot of stuff. People will lose jobs, but at the same time, having more money in the space also validates it, and I think it. it pushes people to view it differently. I mean, media, I think that VCs putting a lot of money into digital media actually did help validate, like did help people take digital media seriously because people before were like, oh, it's just the blogs or like, oh, you're a digital writer, right? You're not a real writer. When And so when money comes in, it, it does have the benefit of like form, like ta- makes people take it seriously. I think in the long term, obviously like, yeah, there's room for private money. Some investors are amazing. I mean, some investors are like, there's this guy, Hunter Walk was like an early YouTube employee and like is a phenomenal venture capitalist, like really wants to like help people really understands that like, you know, the, the problems in the creator world. Um, and then, and then you have just the ones that are, you know, there to make a buck. I think that that's a nice point to wrap up on is that like they are taking it seriously, right? Capital is taking it seriously because they see opportunities to make money. And I think as your reporting really exemplifies, we have to take it just as seriously because these are labor issues, right? These are, these are issues of, of, of labor, of, of the entertainment that most of us, you know, uh, enjoy, uh, you know, every day, right? Like, you know, I think more people spend time on, on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, consuming that entertainment, that media, that content than anything else, right? And so, you know, the, these are, these are really important issues. And, and yeah, I, I just, I appreciate your reporting on this. Um, and driving that there, there is, we can't just let capital be the only people to start taking this seriously, that this isn't just something to look down upon or it's frivolous, but instead it's, it's growing and it's scaling and it's, you know, it impacts all of us I mean, in various different ways. Yeah. Like this is our media climate now, like these people d- determine our media narratives and and shape our views on things. Like I think people hear the word influencer or creator and they think that I cover just a bunch of like teenagers in LA. And it's like, no, these are people. I mean, I just recently wrote about a bunch of like the vaccine efforts and misinformation stuff. Like you have huge figures like Joseph Mercola, right? Like I would consider some of those people influencers and they're certainly monetizing like influencers. And so there are, you know, I think we need to take this industry seriously and recognize that it's not just teenagers, it's 
all of these people of all different ages that are like warping our reality on the internet and and it's media now. Yeah, and for many people, this is their job, and you know, and we have to we have we have to care about the the labor conditions of people yes. wherever they work and however they work, and this is how a lot of people are working right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, thank you so much, Taylor. I mean, this has just been a, a great dis- a, a great discussion and one that's been a, a long time coming. Um, everybody, of course. Follow all of Taylor's reporting at the New York Times. Um, you know, w- what What else would you like to plug? I, I know that you're working on a book right now. It might be too early days uh, to give us a I have to write about- the book before I plug it. It's just about like all of this stuff. I got my book deal literally right before the pandemic. And then the pandemic like fucked me so hard. And so I was like, uh, and so now I'm like, uh, I don't know what I'm going to write, but it's, that's going to be in like a year and a half or book timelines are so crazy long. It's like, who knows? But, um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I would say just follow me on i have a Substack, uh just taylorlorenz.substack.com and uh on instagram and twitter i'm taylor lorenz or tiktok or twitch whatever i'm everywhere (laughs) (laughs) excellent yes follow follow taylor everywhere but most importantly read taylor's reporting in the new york times uh read it read it often read it always um and yeah just just great to have you on taylor and thanks uh, for coming on yeah. Yeah. Thanks wanna, for having me. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to thank all of our listeners as well. Thank you for listening. And you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills, uh, where we will give you another premium episode every single week. Um, we are, we are like all podcast creators on that one free one paid episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's the strategy. So, so f- find us there at Patreon. Um, for, for more of this kind of, of content. Uh, and yeah, uh, I think I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you again, Taylor. And until next time, later.
Kill.